Oh, if you have your Bibles in front of you, I'll have you open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And um, if you have your first Peter journal in front of you, we're not going to be using that today. We're going to be in another text, but in your first Peter journal is some notes. And so I would love for you to at least grab a piece of paper in there and take some notes with me this morning as we walk through our text today. Well, today's Palm Sunday, so happy Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday celebrates Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday starts Holy Week. But more importantly, Palm Sunday demands we ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? If you're familiar with the text that we usually go to on Palm Sunday, it's the triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry tells the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem after the news of his miraculous deeds begin to spread. They find out that he's this miracle maker. He's this powerful worker. And the news of his power and fame is spreading. And the people are excited to see the king of the Jews ride into Jerusalem. And it's interesting because the triumphal entry is in each of the four gospels. But each of the four writers of the gospels do word it a little bit differently. They share it just a little bit differently. And so I wanna just quickly read for you all four and help you kind of see the main kind of feel on that day of what was going through people's heads. So in Luke chapter 19, it reads this way. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that, he had, that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. John chapter 12 words it this way. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Mark chapter 11 words it this way. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom in the highest heaven. And then I think the most interesting one is Matthew chapter 21, because it tells you a dialogue that takes place amongst the crowd as Jesus is riding in. It says this, Hosanna to the son of David, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. And so you see in this story, we see people wrestling over the most important question in the entire world. And so today we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which answers that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so we're gonna look at that text today and see how it answers the the wrestling and the pondering that were happening when when this this man, this prophet rides in Jerusalem on on a donkey, on a colt, and the people were praising him. We're gonna see exactly who he is and what he came to do from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
So today we start a two-week mini-series, if you will. It'll be our Easter series from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're gonna be mainly looking at verses one through 11, and we're gonna emphasize that key phrase in the first, ver uh, in the first few verses of, of first importance. And so what we're gonna do in this, these two weeks is we're gonna look at two things. This week, we're gonna look at the gospel, as in the gospel content. Like, what is the gospel? And then next week, Pastor Todd on Easter Sunday is gonna share with us gospel contact. So we're gonna look at what the gospel is and then what happens when you interact with the gospel. What happens when you hear it proclaimed and what it does into our heart. And so I'm really excited for us to dive into this text. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses one through 11. Today, we're gonna mainly focus on verses one through six. And verses one through two say this. We'll look at those to start. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preached to you, which you received, which in, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the gospel is a term that I believe all Christians are familiar with. Like I think if you went up to a Christian and mentioned the word gospel, they'd know what you mean. But I'm curious what the percentage would be of the percentage of Christians that know the definition of the word gospel. Like, could they define it? Could they articulate it? Or would there be a variety of different definitions over that word? Just as Paul felt a need as he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church, as he gets all the way to chapter 15 to say, I think it's my time to remind you of something important. So it's our challenge and our goal today to be reminded of simply what the gospel is. What is it and why is it so important? So a simple reminder today of what the gospel is. And so in our text, verses one and two, he tells us four truths about the gospel and two warnings about the gospel. Before, in chapter three, he tells us what the gospel is. So let's real quick look at the, at the truths about the gospel and the two warnings. So the four truths you see in the text is number one is the gospel is proclaimed. So what, what is proclaimed? What are things that we proclaim? You proclaim news, you proclaim content, information, or truth. So whatever this gospel is, it needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be told. It's news, it's content, it's information, it's truth. The second thing about the gospel is that it's received. So you have a, a herald or a proclaimer, and then you have recipients or believers. The gospel is something that we hear and we believe. If you've ever talked to a child who has put their faith in Christ, a lot of times they'll say, I accepted the Lord Jesus as my savior. What they're telling you is they accepted the good news of the gospel. They heard it proclaimed and they believed it and they owned it, they accepted it. And so it's proclaimed and it's received. The third truth he tells us about the gospel is we stand in it. The gospel gives us confidence and it gives us assurance. This truth, what we're gonna look at in just a few moments, is something we can take a stand on. We can be confident, assured in. It's so true, it gives us confidence. And then the last thing it tells us about the gospel is it saves us. This is powerful news, isn't it? This news saves us. It is effective. 
It has power. This news is powerful, has the ability to even save us. It accomplishes our salvation. So this truth is powerful. But then notice the two warnings he gives us. Before he dives into what the gospel is, he shares with us two warnings. The first is to hold fast. He says that we must hold fast to this gospel or what he's trying to say is it is possible to hold on to it loosely. Imagine that you had something of great value. Would you carry it around the house loosely as if possible to bobble it or drop it? No, if it was of high value, you would hold on to it tightly. You would protect it. You would uh, grip it. You would hold on to it. This is what he's telling us needs to be true of the gospel. It is so true. We need to grasp it as highly valuable, as very important for it is possible to hear the good news and to hold it loosely. Like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Sure, it makes sense, but ah, whatever. There's other opinions or views as well. And then the second warning he gives us is it's possible to believe it in vain. So you can hear it, acknowledge it, but then quickly it floats away. I kind of imagine it as if somebody shares with you news and you kind of give them the, the kind head nod. Like, yeah, 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 I hear you. Good point, solid point. All right, can we move on with our day? It's possible to have that type of attitude towards this gospel. You hear it, you receive it, but then a moment later, it's out of your mind. So it's possible to believe it in vain. It can, it can have no effect or it can not change you if you just nod your head in agreement rather than loving it and cherishing it and being amazed by this gospel. So it's even possible today, as, as, I, as I relay to you the gospel today, we will have those types of responses today. We will have some today as we walk through the gospel that will say, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. No big deal. I'm fine. We'll be all right. And walk out the door holding it very loosely. No big deal. It's not to be protected or cared about. And we'll have others of you in the audience that it's possible could kind of nod your head in agreement like, yeah, that makes sense. All right, time for lunch, right? We could have those similar responses. And he warns us not to do those things. So today, my job is to outline for you the gospel, the gospel content. Next week, Pastor Todd will come and share with us gospel contact. What happens when you intersect, when your life intersects with the gospel message? So now let's look at verses three through six. This is gonna be the heart of my message where Paul outlines for us what the gospel is. Verses three through six, he tells, Paul tells us and defines the gospel. And he starts out by saying in verse three, for I delivered you of first importance. He tells us that this gospel is of utter importance, first importance or most importance. Uh, what I'm about to share with you is of the most important thing in the world. This is the, the thing that you need to understand more than anything else. The Greek word for uh, most important is one simple word that just means first in order of all things. Of everything, this is the most important thing. Make sure you understand this thing. If you like movies like I do, you've seen this typical plot line. And let's see how the response goes to this. Have you ever seen a movie where the plot kind of goes like this? Maybe a guy has, uh, has to defuse a bomb or maybe he's in an airplane and the pilot passes out and now he's got to take over, right? And he's like, I don't know how to defuse a bomb. I'll call somebody. 
So he calls somebody and the guy's like, all right, I'll help you through this. Don't worry, we got this. All right, when it comes to defusing a bomb, the most important thing, the first thing you gotta do is, and the line ends, the line goes dead. What do you think that man's response is? Do you think that individual who needs desperately that news is like, it probably wasn't that important. Whatever he was about to share with me, it's probably just a suggestion, an idea, one way to do it. There's three wires here. I don't think he was gonna tell me exactly which one to cut. Let's go for it. No, that guy is right now panicking. He is terrified. I need to know that important information. Whatever he was about to share, I gotta get him back online. I don't know which wire to cut. I don't know how to fly a plane. This is gonna go poorly. I wish and I pray that all of us had that same type of attitude when it comes to the gospel. If this is truly the most important thing in the world, then we should be dying to know it. It obviously has high importance that we should be grasping onto it tightly, holding onto it, not just head nodding, but like, I got it. That makes sense. I'm in, I needed this news. This was of high importance. If the gospel is truly the most important news in all the world, we should be dying to know it and clinging to it tightly. Jesus told a parable while he was on earth of about a man who finds a treasure. And this man buries it and he hides it in a field and he goes and sells everything he has to purchase the field because that treasure was of that high value. And Jesus was pointing to the gospel message, saying, that's the gospel. There's nothing more important than this. Get rid of everything else in your life in order to get it, if that's how this works. This is the most important thing. Don't just overlook this. Don't head nod it. You need this. This is the most important thing in the world. Now, Paul's gonna walk us through what this thing is, the gospel content. Here's how Paul articulates the gospel. He says the gospel is Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's how Paul lays it out for us. Today, we wanna look closely at the gospel, these four aspects that Paul lays out for us and walk through each one of those. He's gonna, he's, we're gonna talk about Christ. Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised. So since you're taking notes, right? You'll oblige me this way. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make five boxes or five paragraphs. We're actually gonna look at five aspects that Paul walks us through when he talks about the gospel. And so we're gonna hit each one of these five and I want you to write down things that we need to know about those five, important truths about each one of these five. You'll see where, how I get to five in just a second. Um, all right, let's start with the first one, Christ. The gospel is about Christ. And Christ answers the question, is he, Jesus Christ, able to save us? What we need to know about Christ is, is he able to save us? You see, the gospel is the story of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. It's a story, it's good news about Jesus Christ. I read a great quote last week as I was preparing. It says this, you haven't proclaimed the gospel if you haven't proclaimed Jesus. 
Let that soak in for just a moment. If you're gonna share the gospel with a friend, a loved one, somebody you care about, you have to proclaim Jesus. That's what the gospel is, the story of his life. I get an opportunity to lead membership class and the second week of membership class, people have to share their testimony. And so I always try to prep them and say, now as you're sharing your testimony, Make sure you preach Christ. Like make sure Christ is a part of that testimony. This is his story about what he's done for you. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel that you believe, that Christ saved you. So Paul here calls him Christ. Notice that he calls him Christ. Remember Jesus's name, uh, his name was Jesus and Christ was his title. Christ means anointed one or promised one or the Messiah. The title Christ lets us know that he is the one sent from God to save the world just as he promises Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter three, when he says, there's gonna come one who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. He's gonna crush the head of the serpent, and save us from our sins. That's the one I'm gonna send. That's the Messiah. That's the Christ. This is Jesus. He's sent from God and he himself is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. Jesus Christ is God. Amen. Jesus means, his name means God saves. So when the angel came to Joseph, when Mary was pregnant, the angel said to Joseph, your wife will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from from their sins. His very name points us to the fact that God saves. He's the anointed one. This is the one who's come from God to save us from our sins. Jesus, the Christ. So this teaches us that God, that Jesus is fully God, 100% God. And he had to be fully God in order to save us. He had to be all powerful, sovereign over all things in order to save us. You see, this is why Adam couldn't save us. And Moses couldn't save us. And David couldn't do it either because only God could save us from our sins. We needed God to come and rescue us. No man was good enough. You see, Christ is not just a better version of you and me. He is God incarnate, God in flesh. Philippians chapter two tells us that Jesus, who those in the form of God did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he humbled himself. God humbled himself and came to earth to save us from our sins. And then the theology of the virgin birth teaches us his otherness. No other man was, was um, conceived by the Holy Spirit and, and given to us by God, only Jesus. All these things teach us that he's the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. So who is Jesus? If you're taking notes, he is the eternal son of God who became man to save us from our sins. That's who Jesus is. That's who we worshiped today. This is who we sing about the eternal son of God who became man to save us from our sins. In each one of these points, I wanna just take a quick moment and share with you a common heresy around these theologies, just to show you potential pitfalls or, or landmines that, that 
good, good honest Christians try, you know, try as they learn and, and decipher who Jesus is, fall into sometimes. So there's a common heresy about Jesus called adoptionism. And adoptionism is the, is the heresy that denies Jesus's preexistence or his eternality, and therefore denies his deity. It teaches that Jesus was a man, simply a man, who was tested by God, and after passing the test, was given supernatural powers and was adopted as a son. Jesus was then rewarded for all he did with his own resurrection and adoption into the Godhead. So Jesus was a man just like you, a little bit better than you. He passed the test and was granted deity. And there's a lot of religions that teach this as well. And I think the reason they lean this way is because it gives you something to do. So it tells you, be like Jesus and earn your own deity. Don't you all wanna become gods? You can do it, be like Jesus and you will become deity like him. That's the, the, the heresy of adoptionism. But John 1, 1 teaches us that Jesus is the pre-existent Christ. And it even gives Jesus credit for creating the world before anything existed. Jesus was with the Father and John calls him the Word. So who is Jesus? He's the eternal son of God who became man to save us from our sins. So in your second box now, we're gonna talk about Christ's life. And the reason I wanna talk about Christ's life is because it's not specifically mentioned here in our text, but it is implied. Christ's death implies a life, doesn't it? If Christ died for our sins, that implies he lived a life. Jesus became a man so that he could die for us. But his life is as significant as his death. And it asks the question, was he a suitable substitute? Was he able to save us? Was he able to take our place? You see, Jesus is not, all, not just 100% God, he's 100% man. If Christ wouldn't have fully obeyed the Father while here on earth, he wouldn't have been the acceptable sacrifice you and I needed. His 33 sinless years on earth made him an acceptable sinless substitute, the one you and I both needed. You see, Jesus is the spotless lamb hinted at in the Old Testament. He's the suitable sacrifice that is needed. Again, this is why Adam didn't save us, Moses didn't save us, and David couldn't save us. They didn't and couldn't fully obey the Father. All of our Old Testament heroes, they failed the test that only Jesus fully passed, sinlessness. Therefore, he could be our, our substitute. A common heresy about Jesus's life is docetism, Docetism teaches, it comes from the, the Greek word uh, doxis, which means to seem. And this teaches that Jesus only appeared to have a body and was not truly incarnate. Docetus viewed matter as inherently evil. Therefore the body was evil. So think about all the evil in the world and how mankind causes all that evil. So if mankind is so rotten and evil, there's no way that God would become man and become evil. So therefore he seemed to be a human. He looked human, but he wasn't. 
And that's the, the, uh, a common heresy today. But our text teaches us that Christ had to become the suitable sacrifice by obeying the, the will of the Father to every degree, 100%, so that he could willingly lay down his life and earn that righteousness that he declares to us. All right, the second thing that Paul mentions in your third square that we're gonna talk about now is that Christ died. This is where Paul goes next when he thinks about the gospel. Christ died for our sins. And that answers the question for us, what is the penalty for sin? Like, why did Christ die? What did he have to do? Because that is the penalty for sin. Why did Jesus Christ die? For our sins. He died because you and I deserve to die. Christ's death teaches us that God is just and he keeps his word. When he told Adam and Eve, and the day that you, sure, you surely eat it, you will surely die. Got that wrong, but you know what I mean. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He meant it. He was telling the truth that the punishment for sin is death. So someone's gonna have to die for your sins. So Jesus had to die for our sins. Christ died the death that you and I deserve. His death was not just a demonstration of God's love for us. It was in our place. The theological term or the beautiful uh, phrase that we use when it comes to this idea is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means there's a penalty. Substitution means somebody took our place and atonement means it covered our sins. It paid the penalty. And that's the beautiful theology that us Protestants hold to and cling to is that Christ was our substitute for our sins and that sin paid the price for our sin. And that's what we cling to when it comes to Christ's death. He died in your place. So if you believe the gospel, you believe that Jesus died in your place. And then our text tells us that it was according to the scriptures, like his death was prophesied. God told us that this exactly what would happen. My mind immediately went to Isaiah chapter 53, this beautiful text that talks about our suffering servant who would come and die in our place. It reads this way, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the atoning, atoning lamb, the spotless lamb that takes away our sins forever, eternally, the perfect substitute. A common heresy about Christ's death is called the swoon theory. Not sure if you've heard about this, but this theory teaches us that Jesus did not actually die but he went into a deep coma or a swoon. And from the severe pain and trauma, he passed out. 
But however, in the cool atmosphere of the tomb, he revived, he came back to life and was somehow able to get enough strength to rip the strips of cloth that were uh, tightly wrapped around his body and even able to move the large boulder. And so he didn't really die, he just passed out because God would never crush Jesus. The king of the world can't die. That's loss, not victory. That's, that's defeat, not victory. And so he would have never died. But our text clearly teaches us that Jesus had to die in our place, because that's your punishment. A few reasons we know he died. The Romans were experts at crucifying people. They had this down to a science, down to an art. They didn't mess up. They had done this thousands of times. They knew exactly how to inflict the most pain, causing somebody to die by asphyxiation. They were experts at this. Second reason we know was the pierced side. Remember the, the guard or the soldier went up to Jesus and what they would typically do is break the, the legs so that the individual would collapse on himself and die from asphyxiation. But the, the, the soldier went up to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. There's no need to break his legs, so I'll just prove that he's dead by piercing his side. And when they pierced his side, I'm not a doctor, but water and blood, a mixture came out of him proving that he was dead. And so to the guards, the ones that were experts at this had enough evidence to say, it's, it's done, he's gone. The third reason we know he died is because Pilate gave his corpse, his body to Joseph of Arimathea, giving him permission to have the body. Like, yeah, sure, take care of the trash. Like, I don't wanna take care of it. If you want it, go ahead. I've got no use for it. Pilate was not gonna weigh, give away a dying man. He wanted to finish the job, make sure that it was over. And so you see that Christ really did die in our place. And that is really good news. The fourth box that we're working on that Paul tells us about is that Christ was buried. That Christ was buried. And I think this one's really interesting that Paul mentions this when he outlines the gospel. And his burial teaches us or answers the question, did Jesus really die? Some of these kind of go together a little bit. And we know so much about his burial, which means it must be significant. His burial proves his death was an actual death. It proves God kept his word and he would pour his wrath out upon sin. That's what the burial teaches us. And it sets us up for the beautiful news of the resurrection. To be able to see the dead body and then to see the dead body rise again is proof of the resurrection. We know a lot about those three days while Christ was buried. We know that he was taken off the cross. He was given to Joseph of Arimathea. He was placed in an unused tomb. We know that his body was meticulously wrapped, including the face covering. He was embalmed, which is uh, later we find in the tomb, laying there, the face napkin folded nicely. We know that there was a large stone that was rolled in front of the tomb to protect anybody from getting in, stealing the body. Like there's so much detail we know about those three days that helps us know he really died and he really rose again. All of these facts verify that Christ really died and he was buried. There's a common theory about his uh, heresy, about his uh, burial as well. And it's called the no burial theory. And this premise was that Jesus was never put in the tomb to begin with. 
Instead, he was thrown into a mass grave. So the Romans would kill a lot of people and then they would just throw them into a mass grave. This is why we're given so much detail about his body. So we know that it, that it was him. We know about Joseph of Arimathea, the, the strategic place he plays in this. So we know that his body was taken from there to the tomb and that the, to, the, the body was later gone and he rose again from the grave. And so that can't, that can't be true because of the detail we're told. You see, our, body, our Bibles give us so much detail about every aspect of those days because every detail matters. He really did what he said he was gonna do. He died for our sins. And then our last box that we're working on is that he was raised. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. This is what we're told about his resurrection. We'll talk about this for sure more on Easter, but here's what we need to know. What we know about the resurrection was that after he died, Joseph took him to the tomb. The large stone that blocked the tomb was rolled away. That large tomb, that large rock that was meant to keep people out was gone and the body was no longer there. We know that the Jews requested a guard to protect the, do the tomb from being uh, messed with. We know that the guard, when the guard interacts with the angel, he's so terrified of the angel, he runs away and he goes to the high priest and tells them everything that he saw. So he interacts with the angel. We know that the angels also meet the two Marys at the tomb and they announce to the two Marys that he's not here. He's risen. So we're told that account from the angelic beings that he's gone. And then we see with our, our disciples' eyes, the empty tomb. We have Peter and John who run to the tomb and they see the folded garments inside the tomb with no body in there. And then we're told in our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus appeared. He appeared to Cephas and then he appeared to over 500 other brothers. We have over 500 eyewitness accounts of his resurrection that he did not stay buried, he rose from the grave, just like he said he would. So all of this is evidence to help us believe and to know that the gospel is one of Christ who is raised from the grave. A common heresy about the resurrection is called the mass hallucination theory. This is the idea that everyone who claimed to see the risen Lord was hallucinating out of an earnest desire to see Jesus alive. So they all wanted it to be true so badly, they all saw him in a hallucination risen and they all collaborated stories and have spread that news of a hallucination. The other one is very similar to it. It's of the stolen body theory. This is the idea that all the disciples got together and said, hey, we gotta make up a lie. We gotta make up a lie that he rose from the grave. So they stole the body and then they all collaborated. And so for 2000 years now, the disciples have just owned it. Like, let's just all buy this lie and we'll spread the church and the gospel to the ends of the world on a lie. And we know these things aren't true because of the detailed account of our Bibles that even tell us that it was the chief priests who wanted to lie. And they even bribed some of the disciples to see if they'd be willing to lie and say that the body was stolen. So the word of God is detailed in so many aspects to help us know the gospel is true. Not only does the resurrection prove the payment was accepted, but it shows us that God will also raise our mortal bodies. Aren't you grateful for that? 
You see, his resurrection is our resurrection. Since Christ defeated sin, death, and Satan, we will in the end times be resurrected and be with him for eternity. So churches, I just quickly went through these five aspects of the gospel as Paul lays them out for us. I just wanna share with you again, how Paul reminds us of what the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let me put this all together for you in a take-home truth or take-home summary that'll help make it, maybe make sense a little bit more. What is the gospel? The most important, life-giving, life-saving reality in the history of the world is the gospel, church. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. Do you believe it? Do you love it? Do you hold on to it tightly? Do you cling to it? Do you affirm it with all your, your being? Are you willing to bank your eternity on it? One of the things I had to share with you is our, we call it our faith and message. If you go on our website, you'll see our doctrinal statement. And on there, it's just so beautifully written about what we believe about Jesus and what he did and who he was. I just wanna read it for you for a moment. And I pray that this will just sink in deeper into your hearts, into your affections for who Jesus is. It says this, God the Son. Christ is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taken upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. He honored the divine law by his personal obedience and in his substitutionary death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. He was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucif crucifixion. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God, where he is, he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is affected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. He now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord. Amen, church? Amen. That's who Jesus Christ is, and that's what he's done for you and I. That is the gospel. And when, when Paul uses the word gospel, he means something very specific, and at First Family Church, when we use the word gospel, we mean something very specific. And it is that that we, we celebrate every Sunday. We say that we celebrate the gospel together. We are celebrating the life, death, burial of Jesus Christ. And so my question for you today before we leave is, do you believe the gospel? Do you love the gospel? Do you bank your eternity on it? Are you standing on it? Are you clinging to it? Are you or are you banking on something else to get you in one day? Are you clinging to your good works? Are you clinging to your family line or name? Are you clinging to God's kindness? Like, oh, he'll just let everybody in. This is what he does. No, we cling to the gospel, 
Just as Paul begged the first Corinthian church to cling to the gospel 2,000 years ago. Church, the events in Christ's life that took place 2,000 years ago this week all happened for a reason. And it tells us the beautiful lengths God went to save us. As we continue to encourage you to spend time in the word of God every day, as it's the best thing you can do, we wanna make these available on your way out. The ushers will be passing you a Easter week in real time. Would you be willing this week to just use this as your daily devotions? There's a description of what happened each day this week and then scripture passages that go along with it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our entire church together spent time every day this week meditating on who Jesus is and what he did for you. Let's make much of the gospel together as a church this week. So please make sure you grab one of these on your way out. So church, this Palm Sunday, who do you say Jesus is? Is he Christ, your King? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Is he your substitute? If he is, there's nothing greater than we can do right now to remember his sacrifice through communion. So we're gonna do that in just a moment here. Church, if he is not your Savior and your Lord, your Savior and your substitute, Hear me, if there's breath in your lungs, then there's still time. You can run to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins today. I don't wanna just assume all of us are there, that we agree on who Jesus is and what he did. If there's breath in your lungs, you can still turn to Jesus. No matter your sin, you can run to him and he will forgive you of all your trespasses, all your transgressions. Jesus came to save you from your sins. Will you turn to him today?